is to begin to develop, or at least reflect on, think about a different way of looking at retreat life and then so-called real world that we go back to, daily life. What we've been suggesting is prior to all these forms invented by humans, which are just conventions, useful as they may be, there's life. And the most obvious challenge of life is to live it. What could be more obvious? And as we know, that's not always easy. When Churchill was asked what his philosophy of life was, Winston Churchill, for those very young, he was a prime minister of England. Because <laughs> I've taken, I'm so dated, I say things and I look at blank looks. So I can't assume that people know Churchill or Stalin or anyone. Uh, anyway, he was asked what his philosophy of life was, and he said, oh, just one damn thing after another. <laughs> Took a puff on his cigar, and then his, he was a big drinker. Um, so now... Uh, Probably your mind is already home in some cases, but your body is here. Am I just imagining that, or maybe it's just a few minutes? But the truth is, we are here. And when we were home, our mind was here while the body was home. We can't wait to get here, or I should go, it'd be good for me. So somehow, wherever we are, our mind isn't. It wants to be somewhere else, someplace better where it has to go. In the meantime, life is lived out now, by now, by now, here now, here now, here now. And that's all there is. That's the way it is. Okay, so the attitude we've been trying to convey is while here, um, each situation has an intelligence built into it. A retreat has certain uh, obvious, some of it are just rules, guidelines, so that we can live as a little community in a reasonable way for a week harmonious way, and also there are certain features that are different here than anywhere else. The silence, and, you know, I don't have to spell all of it out. Um, so correct action here is to be able to clearly see what is asked of us in this situation and then to wholeheartedly do it. And so all that's happening is this situation ends, and we call it going home. We are going home. And uh, sometimes it's co- this talk at the end of a retreat is called an integration talk. I've mentioned this. I feel it needs to be repeated. That means we're trying to integrate what we've been doing here. Somehow, it pay- it, I see it as stitching together two pieces, like two car- pieces of carpet that we've separated in the first place. We've cut it in half, and then we say, oh, we better stitch this together now we're going home. They never were separated. There's just life. Uh, one of the most profound movies I ever saw was one of the worst movies I ever saw. It's called Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> horrible film, horrible. But during the first 20 minutes, Buckaroo Banzai says, no matter where I go, there I am again. And, whoa, knock me for a loop. And then as I kept watching it, and I, I walked out. But the line stayed with me. So even in a, I don't know what, what grade the film should get. So um, we're, we're here. Then we'll be on a plane or in a car. And then we'll be, uh, well, I don't know, whatever's next for you. So life is always here, now, here, now, here, now. And the mind is making up stories about where it is, where it was, where it will be. And it prefers to live in that reality like Doug's story last night, to imagine, if you imagine a room with no, uh, no doors and no windows, how do you get out of that? Well, stop imagining. <laughs> you never were in prison in the first place. So uh, we're going home, and one of the things that everyone or lots of people notice, and especially people new, it, it will be the first time you notice it, is that perhaps you've there's some peace that is that has come upon you during this week together. 
and you treasure it. And you want to freeze dry it, put it in a safe vault, lock it, tie it up, and bring it with you and take it home so you can always have it with you. And then you're about 20 minutes on the highway and someone cuts you off on the road. Bye-bye, hard-earned samadhi, peace, shamatha, whatever word you want to call it. And you suddenly, road rage is alive and well. And then you wonder, well, why did I come to this place? What a waste of time. I, it's just like, doesn't last. See, but, but that's only if what you think the practice is about is acquiring good experiences, filling up our little rucksack with good experiences. But we're learning something quite different, which the, the, the byproduct of certainly can, will include good, good something. I don't want to even call it an experience. Uh, so the, let's say, as you leave here, as I've hinted at this already, uh, and you start to see that you, you can't hold on to some of the uh, mind, qualities of mind that have been developed in this unique environment. And if you tried to, you will suffer. And if you can see that, then you haven't wasted your time here. That's more valuable than just being a peaceful fool. It's better to be an agitated, wise person. <laughs> because you're seeing, oh, because a basic teaching of the Buddha is craving, attachment, suffering. Test it. See if it's true. Don't believe it. That's not going to help you very much. Tentatively, you can believe it so that you uh, care enough to look into your life as you live it to find out if indeed it is true in your own life, not as an idea from a book. And you may find that there's, there's some truth in it. So if you hold on to anything that happened here, you will suffer because the, the conditions change. The situation changes. And if you start to see that, but you'll see this is going on all day long. It's not unique to IMS and wherever you're going next. When you, it's a transition. So you leave home, you go to work. Leave work, you come home. You go to wherever you go next. There, the, the situations keep changing, and the challenge is, what is correct action here? The clearer the mind gets, the more, able it's, it, the more able it is to see what correct action is, and then for the action to be appropriate, skillful, wise, kinder, more beneficial for you and the people in that situation, if there are people. And so it's wholeheartedly living, but it's not with our veins popping out. It's not muscular. It's just a delicate, sensitive uh, being alert to, as we move from one situation to another, to see it in a fresh way. Uh, not always living through yesterday's, seeing things through yesterday's eyes, which we can't help but do. Okay, many of you are new. So uh, those of you who have been around the block a lot, try to be, practice the parami of patience. Uh, because you've heard this probably a thousand times, if you've come here a thousand times. It's a little, no one has probably, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Except perhaps my, you know, okay. Um, it is very useful to develop a sitting practice. These are common questions that are asked, so I'm anticipating them. Uh, how long? In other words, every day, if you can, a good time to start sitting is in the morning to get the day going. You can put a certain, uh, uh, it gets the day off to, to a good start. Essentially, what you're saying to yourself is you sit quietly and just be with yourself, with or without the breathing, um, which to me, to, to reserve some time where you're just with yourself, with no other project, is not a luxury. And as the world gets more and more uh, dangerous and complex, uh, it's really a necessity to have some time to collect yourself and then enter whatever your life is from that place. So uh, to, to devote some time and to protect it, uh, a good time is the morning, but you, know, you have to arrange it based on your day. If you can, late when you come home from work or school or whatever you, uh, your day is like, it'd be nice if you can do it again. And then the, there's usually the question, how long? Now, on many, uh, in many retreats, people will say 45 minutes in the morning, 45 minutes in the evening, 20 minutes in 20. I don't know where those numbers come from. It would be easier if I just made it up. 35 minutes in the morning, easier on me. And maybe your mind would be more satisfied. Ready? Go. 
but we're trying to remember uh, it was an alternate an alternative definition of discipline that was given, which is not conforming to a norm over and over and over and over again, but it's becoming a disciple. Remember, disciple and discipline in, in, uh, have the same root in language. And it's becoming a disciple of your own understanding, being sensitive to your own life as you live it and learning from that, so that you're the student, life is the teacher, and of course, teachings and books and all that can play a role. But if you develop this attitude, which we've been encouraging, I think, day in the entire retreat, then for one person, 20 minutes is an eternity. Uh, another person, they're just getting warmed up, and they, they can sit an hour and a half. So I don't know how long you should sit. I would suggest, you ch- for those of you who knew, challenge yourself a wee bit. If 20 minutes seems to be roughly how much you can sit, make it 25. That's, uh, learning comes that way. If you overdo it, it becomes oppressive. Uh, burdensome, and you probably quit. Uh, And let that go naturally, which it will, rather than some arbitrary number, which then you force yourself to (coughs) approximate or to conform to. And uh, it's a nice drill, and then you can feel disciplined, but I don't personally don't think it's as valuable as becoming a disciple of your own understanding. More and more trusting yourself. We all have innate wisdom, and as the mind gets clearer, you'll see that. Clear mind is, is with clarity is wisdom. You can't separate them. Okay, and then try to bring mindfulness into everything you do with the, an interest in learning from it. Life is constantly teaching us. Just a few hints because uh, I think the best teaching I can give you is one of the first teachings I was given many, 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 many years ago uh, from my first teacher. I mentioned his name, Krishnamurti, who was an Indian, and uh, I spent about a week with him. And uh, I kept asking him about meditation. I had heard about it. I wanted to learn it. I didn't know what it was, but I somehow wanted to learn it anyway. Uh, and he just didn't respond. Uh, and there were two things, that, two ways in which he taught me, rather uh, not usual. One was... Uh, we took a walk uh, in the woods near where we were, and he said, let's stop and uh, just take a look at whatever. It could be a leaf or a plant or a tree, and if you have any botanical knowledge, throw it out uh, and see if you can give thinking a rest and just look at that. For me, as I recall, it was a leaf or a flower. It was a long time ago, but it was something very simple, and he said, just relax and be with it, and thought comes and interferes just come back to that simple, like we do with the breathing here. Um, so I looked at it. I don't know how long it was. It couldn't have been too long, 10, 15 minutes. And I was moved to tears. It was just, a, I think, a simple leaf. And I, you just saw, wow, there's so much going on in just a leaf. And uh, everything became more alive, the greenness and the shape of it, and without thinking. And then thinking would, of course, come in, who made this? Is there God, etc.? out. Back to just the leaf. And then at the end he said, well, how was it? And I described it, and I was clearly emotionally moved. And he said, okay, now a couple of times a day, just sit down, get quiet, and uh, do the same thing, only look at your mind. So it's the same principle. Pay attention. It's all there. But we all want, give me a new technique. I have this particular problem. Do you have a special technique for this problem? Uh, It's all become so medicinal. Uh, do we have to go to a pharmaceutical company for a specific kind of meditation for every specific mood and life situation? Uh, well, if you're a minimalist, as I am, I'm just too lazy to take on all these other things. Awareness with the intention to learn and understand from what you see and hear, both internally and externally, applies to everything. Finally, it is, as we say, the bottom line. The techniques, the methods coming here, places like this, of course they're useful. Uh, I mean, to me they are. It's you for you to decide. I know many of you already know that, or you wouldn't be here. But finally, you'll see as the years roll on, if you keep practicing, the techniques and forms, useful as they are, some of them fade away, some of them uh, become burdensome. And, but what doesn't is this awareness. It become, you realize that it's life itself. Because when you're more awake, you're more alive. 
and that the learning that comes from seeing accurately what's happening, both internally, your emotional life, and the social situation. As you start to get to know yourself, then the mind becomes clearer. And that's what we bring to our life, to the action requirements. Uh, A few hints. The difference between action and reaction. Most of what we do all day long are are reactions. They're mechanical. We cannot help ourselves. We've been conditioned a certain way. We have a certain, our upbringing, our culture, the whole history of the human race. It's all programmed into our brain, different versions of it for each one of us. And it's been modified over the years to our own unique life experience. And when we meet a situation, that's between us and the situation. If you've had a good upbringing, love, intelligence, some wisdom, encouragement, support. So maybe your conditioning is good conditioning, but it's still conditioning. If you haven't had such good conditioning, it's a rougher journey sometimes. And clear seeing is we can't destroy the conditioning. We're not trying to. But it's seeing it. And is it possible for the mind to see what's happening, like that plant, to see itself, to see uh, people in your life, situations, nature, objects, ideas, anything, the breath, in a fresh way, unencumbered by what's come before. So there's nothing between you and what's happening. And it's, it's always... So uh, when that happens, ordinary things become so alive. And you won't uh, just exhaust yourself running, trying to collect fantastic experiences. Steven Spielberg special effect movies, you know, endlessly. And then we become intensity freaks because we wear that out. And what's the next best thing? And the flavor of the month? And what's the latest uh, whoever, meditation teacher, uh, growth, self-awakening group, uh, food? What's the latest health food? Well, no, they got stuff now that comes from the rainforest. You just eat a couple of those seeds and... you. <laughs> Oh, that's not as good as these raisins that come from the Hunzas. <laughs> they live to be 200 years. I read it in a book. Okay, and it just goes on and on. Uh, is it possible that... Uh, of course there are extraordinary things that happen. And sometimes there are breakthroughs, even in meditation. It's not... Uh, it's uncharted. Uh, life is like that. It's very rich and unknown and full of surprises, much messier than what the books say and much more powerful than what any scheme that's imposed upon it uh, maintains that it is. Useful, but limited. It's Doug's example of a map. The description is not to describe. This is a microphone. That's a word. It's what it is, and it's doing what it does. Um, if you start paying attention to your reactions, uh, the hardest for most of us, maybe all of us, is relationship. One, the human race, as we keep saying, we haven't learned how to live together. We do so many other things beautifully, but we have not, we seem to have such a hard time learning to live with each other. And certainly one reason, for, for whatever reason this is so, it's an, it can't be disputed, our energy doesn't go there. We're brilliant. Just think of what it took to get to the moon. The amount of money, time, energy, the number of people all working in concert to then place people on what was just science fiction when I was growing up. It's a reality. And now we, so, and I, so there are endless horizons to discover. And then I remember in a few years, the last frontier, the ocean, because we don't know anything about the ocean, And I say, that isn't the last frontier. You're sitting on the last frontier. (laughs) You're the last frontier. In the Buddhist teaching, the cause of suffering is ignorance. Finally, the root cause, the soil out of which comes ignorance. one, One meaning of that is that we ignore ourselves. We ignore how we live. We have a little bit of an idea. So the logic is rather simple. What if we turn it around and instead of ignoring, we start paying attention? If you want to get to know a person or if you want to get to know anything, you have to come in close and spend time with them. This is asking us to 
coming close and spend time with yourself. And it is not limited to sitting or a meditation center or quietude because the reactions that we have in each other's presence, are th- those are teaching you something. I believe Doug referred to it as a mirror. Uh, this is his, his phrase about a family, but I'm going to generalize beyond a family. The whole planet is just a complete mirror because wherever you go, you have a reaction. That's teaching you something about yourself. It's mirroring something back, if you're willing to learn. So, and it's a new way of looking at things. It's not, at first, it may seem stilted. You're with another person. It's not the person says something, and then you say, oh, excuse me, my teacher said that we're supposed to watch our reaction. <laughs> and then it goes away, and then we say, okay, uh, now I'm going to say something. We take forever just to get on a bus. Okay. <laughs> Uh, you can learn how to stay in touch with the other person without losing touch with your inner life. But it takes, it's a new, it's something new. It's a, a form of re-education, adult education, where we have, you have to want it. So when you start paying attention to reactions, they start withering, losing their power, and they're replaced by responses. A response is fresh. It's not so mechanical. It's not mechanical. And I would call what comes out of that action. Whereas the reaction, which we often mistake for spontaneity, just we can't help ourselves. We're programmed a certain way, and it comes out this way. Um, and then in all the talks, we've hinted at uh, something far deeper that's beyond thought, that's infinite. Whether you call it God or infinity or the original mind or Buddha nature or nirvana, uh, the words are endless for it, but we have, there's no question, we're not just sitting here to become, set the Olympic record of continuous attentiveness to the breathing. That's uh, it's helping us to go to a new realm. It's really <clears throat> not new, it's always been there. We're not growing it, it's not imported from India. It's just part of being human. But we, have, we don't know it. Our education has not even... Does, has never encouraged us for that. For example, silence. We know about outer silence. We like to have a home in a quiet neighborhood. When the TV is shut off, it can be a relief. The refrigerator stops. Oh, whatever. Uh, but uh, we haven't understood. We think that living is, is totally talking, thinking, acting, uh, just what so self-evident. And silence is sort of a little bit of a waste of time. So we don't even care about it. I mean, inner silence. And the ancients knew much more about this than we did. It isn't like we've been totally progressing and the ancients were just dum-dums with clubs and, you know, because <laughs> uh, in some ways those cultures knew some things that we've, we've totally neglected and lost touch with. And they're precious and valuable. But they don't know, uh, they don't know about computers, but, which we do. But we don't know some things they did, because they spent a lot of time, some of them, they were often called yogis, exploring what it means to be alive. That was their life's work. They were research scientists. No grants needed, for those of you who are in the academic world. Oh, no, okay. Um, So we've been talking about something beyond, before thinking, beyond thinking, that we have access to. And in a certain way, the whole point of a Dharma practice is to come to our original mind. So then the question is, and then uh, I'd like to leave it at this, how do you bring that, how do you reconcile that with the ordinariness uh, of just our daily life, of getting up, washing, brushing our teeth, flossing, cooking a meal, uh, talking with uh, friends, our partners, our husbands, wives, children, bosses, workers, just what life is made of. Just this the stuff of life. And it's, are they two separate things, holy and then profane? They're often cut in half that way. Opposites thinking. Remember that trap that the Zen people sometimes use as part of their training. Uh, we tend to do that. We cut things, we dichotomize things. Good, bad, black, white, etc. And a few questions. Very good. You've been asking very good questions in the groups and in individual interviews. Uh, 
well, does this make you a misfit? Once you, let's say, you enter into silence. And we haven't said a lot about it, but just in a nutshell, uh, one view of, of enlightenment, it's called the great silence. That's a Tibetan way of putting it in one school. Uh, what's so great about silence? Uh, if I try to tell you that, it, it'll be in words. And the more I say, the further we'll get from it. Uh, but I have to try to say a little bit. Uh, it's a word. It can be called shunya, shunyata, emptiness. When the mind, it's called the crown jewel. What's, what, in other words, the most valuable thing uh, in the Buddha's teaching is emptiness. What? Okay, in the original teachings of the Buddha, what it means is when the mind is free from any attachment to me or mine, and just if, if you're new to this, can you imagine a life where you're not on the line all day long? Am I intelligent enough? Am I beautiful enough? Am I thin enough? Am I tall enough? Am I short enough? Am I healthy enough? Do they love me? Do they hate me? What, why do you look at me that way? Why do they, you know, uh, all day long we're on, the, we're on the block, ready to get our head chopped off. Or, you're wonderful. I am great. And it starts very early. We look into adults' eyes and they say, oh, Larry, he's a cute little guy, a little slow, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, and then little by little, the world starts telling us who we are and we start believing it. And then we add to that. We make up a whole story. It's better than any of the daytime uh, soap operas. And we spend our life trying to clean up that soap opera and prove it so the show keeps going on, that gets renewed, gets good ratings. By who? Just you and me. No one else cares. Jack Cornfield, who's one of the teachers, has a very famous remark, so I can quote it because it's public domain now. Uh, at the end of a retreat, he just looked at everyone and he said, you know, I don't know how to tell you this, but all of us who teach this, we have no interest whatsoever in your story. <laughs> so we do have to look interested or you'd be crushed. <laughs> uh-huh. So he said, she said, she, oh, I see. Uh, well, you're miserable because you're not in a relationship. Uh-huh. You're miserable because you're in one. Okay. Well, why don't you get out of it and why don't you get into it? <laughs> But then you'll both be, still be miserable. So where are we going to go? To the moon. Let's go to the moon. It's safe there. No relationships. Let's put all our energy, time, effort, someplace that's safe. The moon, Mars, whatever is next. Okay, here's the best way that I could... Um, how to reconcile something that's beyond what we think of, as what we're, we're familiar with. Conventional reality, I'm not using conventional in a derogatory way at all. Uh, it's just these are conventions we make so we can live together. Language is one, of course. And so many beautiful sciences and, and arts, are, they're, they're made up, they're wonderful. Okay. Think of it this way. Uh, this is a desperate attempt to communicate this. I've been, I have not been able to do better than this for years, so you're stuck with it because I'm stuck with it. Uh, think of a TV and a toaster and a radio. Okay, they each do different things. They're they're equipped to do different things. So a toaster, all it knows how to do is you put bread in it, press this, and it makes toast. Pops up, and that's good. That's what it's for. Okay, TV it shows images and sounds, and uh, that's what it does. And then, what was the other one? Radio? Radio has no pictures, but sounds come out of it. Okay. The radio can't make bread, a toast. And the toaster can't show you pictures. Because their equipment is different. They're, but they're all plugged into electricity. They're all plugged. So the Dharma practice, we're going to the source of all this. And if you want to call it God, call it. It's just a word, G-O-D. Oop, if you're a Jew, you're not allowed. It has to be G-D. What? You just can't write it. Okay. Okay. See what, what being Jewish is? 
fundamentalist. Okay. okay. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I'm supposed to do that. You know, I don't really feel that. But you know. um, so each one of you, you don't lose your personality. That is, you tap emptiness. There's a, an extraordinary energy in the silence, especially when you can learn to just soak in it for extended periods of time and let it work on you. Just be the silence. But no words can do it justice. The Tibetans say the cognizing power of emptiness. They also talk about it being infinitely responsive. That's important. That means it's intelligent. It's responsive. It's not reactive. It's responsive because it sees clearly. And so what comes out of it is much more likely to be wiser and kinder. Not because you've been brought up to be wise and kind or read in the book or done training. It's mysterious to me, but because that's what happens when you tap that. And all of us can. It's not reserved for special people, but you have to let go of those clouds to get to the blue sky. And if you don't want to, fine. No one, each one of us has to live our own life. Um, just a, a little bit more because attitude is what we've been saying. The attitude of, of really appreciating our life when we get back home. That nothing is too is trivial or small or unimportant. Uh, and, and not spending the day just searching for become an intensity freak. Only the only reason to be alive is, you know, like the flying Wallenders, is just those time on the high rope, where the most ordinary things can be just precious and people, of course, and everything, nothing left out. Um, in this model, which I didn't make up, by the way, just in case you're worried about that, uh, there are some uh, sayings or ways of phrasing things that are designed to help us see the difference in attitude that this is suggesting. One is, a bad situation is a good situation. And that's not commonsensical. A bad situation is a bad situation. We all just want to have good situations. Pile them up and get rid of the, the bad ones. What they're saying is, a bad situation has a tremendous amount of energy trapped in it. And we've been listening to all of us, with each other, of our different bad situations with people, with money, with situation, with business, whatever it is for you. Okay. Uh, from the point of view of liberation, because a bad situation has a tremendous amount of energy that's held captive in it, imprisoned. And if you can learn to open up to it and let it be experienced consciously without judging, interpreting, explaining, analyzing, grabbing, pushing, or using it as a stepping stone to something else, just become intimate with it, enter into communion with it, uh, something valuable comes out of that. Something really valuable comes out of that. Or another way of putting it, as one teacher put it, that by which we fail is also that by which we succeed. Now, the best human example I know of this, again, was this same teacher, Krishnamurti. The last time I saw him was a little less than a year before he died. He was in his 90th year, and a small group of us were meeting with him in New York City, uh, across the street from the UN. He had just given a couple of talks at the UN. And the theme for one week, we would spend two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, just, it would be a kind of dialogue groups so or dis discussion groups. And uh, the theme was, um, it was fear. And so all week we were exploring it, both personally and then and then trying to understand what is human fear, etc., just like some of what goes on here. And then so it, now it was Friday, and we had about 10 minutes to go, and everyone was going to go off in different directions. I was going to go back to Cambridge. He was flying off to California. You know, there were about eight or 10 of us, everyone going somewhere else. And suddenly Krishnamurti starts going on a, 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 what we thought was a tangent. We thought of the old boy has lost, he's fallen out of his crib. You know what I mean? Just suddenly... Uh, he starts talking about a, a diamond. He says, uh, you know, at lunchtime today, some friends took me to one of the best jewelry sh stores in New York City. And I had in my hands this extraordinary jewel. Uh, and I looked at it, and I could just, the, the color and the, the way light was refracted and the way it was cut, and he went on and on. I don't have vocabulary about it. And he just said, 
and it was just extraordinary. And I went deeper and deeper into it, and then I went completely beyond it, and it was just magnificent. And then we were saying, oh, yeah, so? And then he quickly took the diamond and said, and he switched it, and he said, fear is that diamond. And if I have to explain it, I'll try, but do you get it? But that isn't how what we cut. We don't want fear. We hate it. In other words, if you can start to approach fear and learn how to relate to it in a fresh and new way, uh, it's so precious because of what is preventing us from doing. We can't flower as human beings if we never deal with our fear. It keeps limiting us, whatever the fear may be. And so it's in that sense, it's a jewel. And finally, in terms of ordinariness, this is my favorite spiritual story since childhood. By the way, uh, I once gave this some years ago here, and a Jewish scholar, this is a, just a mythological, it's not even mythological, it's just a teaching story. It's just baloney, you know, it was just made up. <laughs> and this person at the end of it at, uh, came up to me and said, uh, that's not a correct uh, rend- rendering of it, because Rabbi Ben, he put it this way, and this one put it that way, and I said, you know, like, and it didn't end that way. It ended this way. You know, I got I'm going like, uh, but this is how my grandmother told it to me, you know. <laughs> and I like the way it is. Okay. So, Bunch of Schweig uh, was a very, very good man. A very simple, simple man, simple job. Uh, and he died. And as they all in those stories, he went to heaven. And um, he was such a good person during his life that while he was in heaven, he was said, Buncha, he was told, you've been just such a wonderful person your entire life, selfless, generous, uh, kind. You can have anything you want. What would you like, Buncha? You're in heaven. And he said, I don't, nothing really. And so they let a little time go by, and they came back, Buncha, come on. You know, we've reviewed you. We know everything about you. You're an extraordinary person. You've just been so uh, kind to people, helped so many human beings. And this went on for two or three days. And they were finally getting exasperated. I don't know who they are. I don't know if they're angels. Are there angels? Are there Jewish angels? <laughs> there are Jewish angels. Okay. <laughs> what, are they different than the Catholic angels? Oh. <laughs> How about the Muslim angels? Okay. So um, so they kept, he kept saying, I don't know, I don't want, finally they said, Buncher, for God's sakes, you know, uh, you've been so good. And he said, okay, okay. He said, can you see to it that I, I get a cup of coffee and a bagel every morning? <laughs> That's it. It's my favorite story. <laughs> I, would, I would add a New York Times, but... They didn't have a New York Times in Eastern Europe. So it's the best I can do. And what's on your mind? What can we talk over together? Please. We did do it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, please. That sounds like another attachment. But go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, What about love? The whole practice is all about love. In other words, if meditation, as it starts to become real meditation, I mean sustained, it's quite powerful. It's an explosion of love. If you're not feeling more loving after doing this for a while, try to find out what you're doing. Check in with someone. Because it's all about love. And love and wisdom can't be separated. Now, to begin with, first of all, the word love, I don't, I'm not sure I know what you mean, because it's so misused. 
you know, it's in every popular song, if you leave me, honey, baby, and you don't love me. Uh, the, love, uh, the love that I'm talking about right now um, is unconditional. And it, it, is, it, can, it can accompany the sexual act. It's not, it's not an enemy of sex, as some religions do separate that. Uh, but it also isn't dependent on it. Uh, it's a force in the universe as powerful as death. So, of course, this is about love. That silence, uh, if you don't experience love, and we have actual practices where you cultivate it from the outside in. We haven't been doing those practices through just these seven days. There's a lot more to the Buddhist teaching than what we're doing. But we are, I feel this is the essence of it. This is the wisdom component seeing the way things are and learning. Now, the letting go, uh, it's not that you try to let go because that would be a struggle. Uh, First off, do you think that attachment, have you found to be true in your life that attachment leads to suffering? Just thinking about it. Okay. But now, the next time you're suffering... Don't be in a hurry to not suffer. See if you can look at it and see if there isn't some attachment there. Okay. Now, uh, then I'm just following up. Then the question might be, well, aren't lo- how can you love without getting attached? Is that what you're getting at to some degree? No one's telling you to relinquish that. Is there anyone here who doesn't want to be loved? I hate love. <laughs> Can't stand it. Hate is what I like. <laughs> no, of course, sure. St- look, start where you are. Now, you're wanting to be loved. That has to be lived with and understood because that may be blocking you from getting love. Okay, I don't know. I don't know you. So I'm just, seriously, I'm speaking in general. But it's not, we're not setting up an ideal of the, what you can, but I'm, I don't think we're trying to do that. The wise, compassionate, totally selfless, extraordinary, you know, uh, at all, what we're saying is start where you are. And that's, if that's a feeling you have, start there. But I would say everyone, it's just human. It's like sunshine. We need to be loved and also to, to love. So, but now often attachment, but that isn't your question, so I don't want to add on to it. But um, love is central. Uh, and one way that it starts to grow is see what's blocking you from it. First, your own ability to love others. And if you feel you're not getting enough, what's that about? What, what does that feel like when you feel you're not, getting, uh, not feeling loved? But to have the, uh, the yearning to be loved, I think we all have that. Uh, that. The yearning doesn't necessarily bring it. In fact, often it's a, a barrier to it. But uh, the practice is certainly about love, of course. Does that make any sense to you? Sort of. I, can, I, can, I see a very subtle butt in there. Your butt's in there. Is there a little bit of a butt? What is okay to what? Look, uh, we, I don't think we've told you what to want and not want. So keep wanting what, and not wanting whatever you want. But <laughs> No, seriously. But explore what happens as you do that. That's what I mean, learning how to live. Find out if what you want, what, what's the consequences of wanting whatever you want or not wanting. And it's true... We, uh, w- uh, wisdom is learning how to nourish and strengthen those urges in us that are beneficial and to unlearn, to w- withdraw nourishment from those, those uh, yearnings or uh, urges, not, not love, uh, that seem to be harmful. But each person has to come upon that themselves how, because it's just a word, L-O-V-E. And how you mean it may not be how I mean it, I don't mean mine is superior, just uh, finally it's not the word. But start where you are. But certainly uh, love is a uh, central part of, of being alive.
Yes. Hey, if I could link both of them, the, the, you know, the practice would be be where you are. And uh, instead of trying to be loving and trying to get love, there's something in back of your question. Find out what that is. There's something in back of it. Uh, but let's say you say, I was a mess, I am a mess. Uh, okay. 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 I'll. Okay. Uh, in the early days of this place, IMS, we used to answer the phone, I'm a mess. <laughs> Seriously. Okay. 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 Um, the starting point of the practice is, throw the word mess out, you know, is that which is going on in your life that enables you to use that word and feel you know what you're talking about. It means something to you, and it's not vague. And that, I, so, okay. um, a general uh, order, I mean genuine order, comes out of seeing disorder, not by trying to impose someone else's, the Buddha said, Jesus said, try to squ squash yourself into someone's model about how you're supposed to be. But at this approach, there are guidelines too, of course, but the emphasis of the wisdom approach is you always start where you are, and uh, it's called a way of negation. Rather than trying to, what, what's the opposite of a mess? I'm okay? I don't know, whatever it is. Instead of trying to be that, you negate, for example, if you want to be nonviolent, in the seven, you know, when we were, many of us were against the war, we were, we were incredibly violent against ending the, uh, the Vietnam War. In those meetings, I think it was worse than Vietnam sometimes. Um, the approach is not to uh, it's not to try to be nonviolent, but to start where you are, which is you are violent, you are aggressive, let's say, and out of that can come a genuine nonviolence, not an ideologically uh, an ideological one where you try to uphold a certain ideal that you think you should be like, and it's fragile. For example, Gandhi did a lot of inner work, and he held millions of people together. Once he was killed, it was a bloodbath because the people were held by his inner development, but they didn't have it. They, they really, his nonviolence was something he had, it was genuine, much more. And he held everyone in order. And then when he was gone, it wasn't in any inner development to the extent that they could do it on their own. And we know it happened. So start where you are. And it sounds like you are doing that. You're comfortable with it, just the way you described it. But now don't become the characterization, you know, the label, the diagnostic category. Uh, just take it moment by moment, see what's there. And as you start getting to see that, that starts clarifying itself. And you may find one day that you don't feel like you're a mess. The order comes out of seeing disorder, in other words. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You need to talk to my wife. She'll just tell you what a jerk I am. Mainly, my job is taking out the garbage. Here, I'm a big wise guy. When I go home, I'm nobody. I yeah. <laughs>
Okay. Yeah. But look, uh, you, you can want that. You can't help your mind wanting that. But that's the stuff of practice. Not ridding yourself of it, but seeing it. Now, just so you understand, it's a certain we can't satisfy certain things. There are no certificates. There are no degrees. We don't write letters of recommendation. There are no transcripts. In fact, we have absolutely no authority or power over you. you could, and you, you've been here doing it yourself. You're doing it to yourself. You could have left any time you want. We, we're just sitting here and doing what we do. So if you put all this on us, that's, don't blame me for your trip. <laughs> Please. This particular form this of practice. Yes. What, what the practice is all of life, but this formal right, practice. Right, right. And um, I, I understand, I think, to some extent, the notion of awareness and the developing of awareness for individual practice. You know, then you take that awareness into your everyday experience. Exactly. What is it? Take your time. In the 20th century, it just feels like there's this 21st. Yeah. Okay. element of the practice that's practicing for this much more complicated sophistication, new choice, everything world that we live in. Exactly. But look, one thing that helped me a lot is reading ancient texts. And you see that the ancient mind suffered just as much as we do. But what you're saying, the content is different. The challenges were different. But people were tormented in different ways. And that they're not prob- it's not problematic for us. But what we have, they didn't know anything about. Now, for the moment, whatever you say, how could anyone disagree with you? But th- what we've been trying to say is, whatever your life is, not as an abstract sociological, socio-historical conclusion, but from moment to moment in your actual life. And this was the second thing that Krishnamurti said to me, which I neglected to mention. Before going home, he said, this was, this was when I first met him, he said, pay attention to how you actually live. And he, he said actually, it was like a loudspeaker, exclamation point, capital letters, neon. How do you actually live? Not how do you think you live how you should live, how your mommy told you to live. How do you, from moment to moment, it's not a, it's not a global concept, it's not something, it's, it's a fact. In this moment, this is the way I am. In that moment, that's the way I am. So in this sense, there's always been awareness, there's always been suffering, there's always been, in other words, what people were greedy and hateful and ignorant about were different, but they still suffered, because you can suffer over anything. Wealthy people suffer over, over being well, have the suffering of wealthy people. Poor people suffer the suffering of being poor people. Uh, do you see what I'm, what I'm getting at? Okay, so uh, are the conditions more complex? Absolutely. And 
but awareness, the, the, maybe this will help. First of all, the distinction between, let's say, individual and social, uh, maybe that's been overplayed. For example, another question that beginners often ask, I don't know if it's on any of your minds, is they'll say, well, isn't this a rather self-centered practice, narcissistic, you're sitting there, you know, just all about me? Uh, it can be, and it can be easily misused, where as an escape from facing the challenges of being in the world, which is it's not so easy to be alive, often, usually, for everyone, often. Um, but when you work on yourself, the only thing you have to offer the people in your life is who you... You're always putting your signature on everything. So it isn't a, a self-centered, self-preoccupied. It needn't be. Because as you start clarifying who you are to yourself and letting go, letting go, letting go, that's who you bring to the people in your life. You can't give them anything you don't have. You can pretend you are or work to strive to appear as if you are. So in that sense, when you take care of yourself... It's the acrobats that, uh, that Matthew was talking about. Like, if you take care of yourself, you are taking care of the people in your life. If they take care of themselves, they have a better chance of taking care of you. You, you see? And, so, and the world is us. If we don't like the way the world is, it's made up of people. Who created this world? Just other people like us. Now, at this point, there are six billion egomaniacs roaming the planet Earth. And there are going to be more apparently, what we've been told, like we don't have enough. Okay. Uh, now, unless we learn, as, and we also shrink, you know, communication, we're all in each other's faces, and sectarianism getting stronger and stronger. I'm a this, you're a that. You know, uh, so there's something going on here that is very dangerous. The world gets smaller and smaller. Trade, boundaries of countries are starting to be less relevant and international. Uh, and we, are, we can communicate in a split second the other side of the globe, and sectarianism is growing. I'm a this, you're a that, get out of here. Okay, we have to learn something new. The old ways of living, they never worked that well anyway. We've been killing each other off for thousands of years. Read, you think it was great at ancient India? If you read what was going on, they were just killing each other with arrows, bow and arrows and knives, and hating each other and suffering. The same as us. It wasn't so different. But it is definitely our challenge is a lot of it is complexity. So here's what I'm Ajahn Chah, who is just a, a very simple, uh, from a farmer background from Thailand, who came here just for a few weeks when the center first opened up. And he, he would say a few times, and it stuck with me, and it's been so helpful. For, he would just say, keep it simple and stick to the present moment. People would, you know, we were all very intellectual people. And I don't know, I'm living with someone, and he doesn't, but she doesn't, and he wants a rhesus monkey to be with living inside. You know, and so like, you know, keep it simple and stick to the present moment. Uh, and it's been just extraordinary. Now, I say it a lot, and of course, because we want complex medicine to heal complex disease. Maybe what we need is some inner simplicity. Complex worlds doesn't see, show any signs of going away. So maybe it's, if we get simpler, maybe we can na- navigate a little bit more skillfully. But you're, the challenge is you put it very well. Yeah. Anyone else? Please. You know, we're going to have a go around in a few moments. Yeah, but go How do you know? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I like your version of reality better than mine. Okay.
I agree. The beginners here work very, very hard. And, and many of you just walked in off the street. I, I don't, you know, I, maybe you thought it was air conditioning here. Yeah, I don't, yeah. yeah. I changed it and put in English. And, yeah. But also, I do want to thank you for the sign that I, I put on my car. That rascal guy, I can't think of him, I can look him up. Actually, believe it or not, put that sign on my car. Because it's real easy to just kind of back out and go back to normal. But um, you know, there's so much more to living a normal life. I agree. No, we have, uh, it's hard work. There's a big backstage. Some of you have complained, you come in late to the center. We, there's a huge backstage so that you guys can sit quietly. And so, and we're giving interviews and groups and the things go on at the center. And so we, we try our best for some, at least one of us to be in the hall. Uh, and it's not perfect, but it's hard work. But I think we have a good time. I, do we have it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a deluded type, I've been told. So, yeah. Yes, please. I don't know if it can. It would be a pragmatic answer to that question. Uh, sometimes people become uh, fall in love with this practice and they want to spread it like peanut butter, you know, everywhere. The, the Dharma go everywhere, bring mindfulness into every nook and cranny of the planet. Uh, if a person can't do it, they can't do it. And uh, my first uh, Buddhist teacher was this Korean Zen monk, uh, and he had about 20 English words, which he used brilliantly. And he really was a very, very compassionate and kind and loving person and tried to help whoever showed up. And it was amazing. It was much crazier when this first started out than it is now. And every now and then it was rare. I remember one time in particular, uh, someone uh, kept coming to the, this was a Zen center, again and again. And I was his uh, attendant, the Zen master. And uh, he looked over at me about this person. He, uh, you could see he was in pain, and he, he had a very pained look on his face. And he said, sometimes maybe fix not possible, mind too broken. Uh, if a person can't do this, like uh, if somebody is uh, chronic, schizophrenic, in a locked ward, they don't even understand perhaps what's being said. Uh, so I would say the answer is pragmatic. If a person is, first of all, you can't, if a person's interest is step number one. If a person's not interested, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make the horse drink. Why even, why waste your time and the poor person? We do this to our families, you know. We come home and there's always some, you know, very often one partner meditates and one doesn't. You've got to start meditating. Why? You know, and then back and forth or with our parents, if you're, and then we drive them crazy about how they got to do it. This is the most fantastic thing. Uh, and then we get upset. They, they don't understand what I'm doing, and it goes on and on. At a certain point, don't preach Buddhism, be a Buddha. I think Ramdas said that. He's right. Just drop it. If, uh, we, you can't, uh, if someone's interested, then something can happen. If they don't have the mental capacity, look, I would like to be the world's greatest basketball player. What do you think my chances are? <laughs> Professional. <laughs> okay, last one, please. Uh, okay. Uh, all right, go ahead. Uh, okay. Could you comment a little bit on your um, 
sure. Self-consciousness is preoccupation. There's a, big, a lot of me in there. How, am I a good meditator? Am I not? Am I hands? Uh, awareness has nothing in it. It's just a, a clear mirror. Put this in front of it, shows it. Self-consciousness, it's a, uh, it's a burden. Does anyone enjoy being self-conscious? Let's say you're shy. You come into a party, you don't know anyone, and you're self-conscious. Uh, the, body, the body language changes. Whereas awareness is free of everything that we're talking about. It just sees. That's its, the beauty of it. So uh, it would, that, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. You know, we're supposed to do a, like a go-around. Um, we have about 20 minutes. And usually we form a kind of a semicircle and just uh, whatever is on your mind. Not, it's not Q&A or any of that stuff. Um, but we only have about 20 minutes just anything that you feel like saying uh, or, or any observations or how the retreat's been for you. or And certainly the new people, most I would invite them to put... Yes, please. The reason is, Einstein was supposedly a very brilliant man, right? Your ego is much smarter than Einstein. It is brilliant. It's the, it's the hardest thing that we're all up against. No matter what you want, it'll give it to you. So it can stay alive. You want to be a great meditator? Fine. That would be self-consciousness. Uh, me as a meditator. The ego, give me a, a nice robes and an outfit, shave my hair, grow a beard. I don't care as long as I'm, I still remain in charge. So it's me meditating. That's how you said it. Oh, no, excuse me, nothing personal. Uh, so in a certain sense, the real meditation starts with the death of the ego. You know, because it becomes a natural thing that you just do. There isn't someone who's doing But to begin with, we all have to begin there. But yes, your ego survived, and you'll see it is tough, and it is brilliant, and it is shameless. <laughs> If you say, if you switch from this, say, I think I just want to open up a whorehouse. Uh, and it'll, then it'll just want to be the best person in that. It doesn't care. It, you know, as long as it's in charge. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.